we've already had, the time of worship that we will continue to have in the Word. Those words were a reminder of us, for us today, about what the text is about. And it is about being Christ-like Christians. How can we actually look like, how can we actually reflect Christ? After all, that is what the call to our faith is, is that we should, in our living, look like Christ. We are Christ-like. If you are not a Christian, then you are not expected to be Christ-like. But if you claim to be a Christian, then there should be those redeemable qualities of Christ in your life. And so we've been talking over the last few weeks as we've been working through Romans. Last week, we talked about what it means to have a kingdom mind. And today we're going to talk about and go a little bit further in that kingdom mind. How does that kingdom mind completely transform who I am as a Christian and as a believer? And so in order to do that, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 15. We're going to start in the first verse. And let's have it in our minds as we work through this, not only considering all the things that we've heard and talked about over the last few weeks, but what the real call for us is today. So go with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 15. We're starting, like I said, at the first verse, Romans 15 and 1. And Paul, as he's been writing, continues here. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare to jump into the word today, God, all of these texts are bringing something else out in us. They're challenging us in some sort of way. Now, we know that none of us in here completely hits the mark, but it doesn't mean that we don't strive. We don't strive to reflect you, to be pleasing to you, to look like you, God. So as we prepare our hearts to hear this word, let us also think about the ways that you've called us to look more like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, this is similar to what we talked about last week when we talked about that kingdom mind, and essentially what Paul is doing here is finishing his thought. Here he says that the strong or the more mature believers in the faith must bear with the failings of the weak. Now, you'll notice that Paul's tone here has changed from where it was before, and he even changes how and who he refers to as the strong and the weak. At this point, he now identifies himself as one of the strong. He says, we who are strong, we, we are incorporating him. He's incorporating himself in that. We who are strong must bear with the failings of those who are weak. 
Now, when he says failings, we might immediately assume that when he talks about the failings of the weak, that he is referring only to those who have failed morally. But this really just refers to people who have weaknesses, their shortcomings. His language here says that we are obligated as believers to not only know that they have weaknesses, but to actually bear those weaknesses alongside with them. Now, I think when you look at the context of the word that he uses for strong here, I don't think strong is only referring to spiritual maturity. I think strong does refer to two things based on his use. Yes, it does mean those strong in the faith, but it also means those who were strong in society, in the world, who had great stature, those who had a good reputation. That also probably refers to their socioeconomic standing as well. The reason this was especially important is because there were probably significant Roman citizens in the church of Rome who not only ranked high in the church, but also ranked high in society. They had good social standing and they also had good financial resources. And so what he's saying is it was expected that those in the church who were stronger in those areas were going to bear more of the load on behalf of those weaker, less influential Christians in the world. This is why the church should not default blindly and say, well, everyone gets treated the same. Everyone gets equal treatment. That would mean that we do the same thing for all people of all standings. But that's actually not the call of Christianity. What Christianity actually suggests is better than equality. It is that we treat each other equitably. We meet people where they are and give people what they need. It is so easy for us to say, well, we give everybody the same thing. But some of us in the church will need more things than other people. And some of us in the church might need less than other people. If there is food, the Christians who don't need it as much should automatically default to the brothers and the sisters in the church that they know probably need it more. I always think it's funny when we have extra food for church events that everyone knows that we got a house full of kids and it's always like, here, here's all the extra food. Take it home because we know y'all need to eat, which is true because we, we eat off that stuff. And I'm also very grateful for it. But it reminds me of the nature of what the church is and does. Even though we're the first family or whatever people call it, it doesn't shy people away from saying, no, we recognize that you may have a greater need. And that's actually what the church has been called to do. See the need. And if I'm in a position to bear the weight of meeting that need, then I bear the weight of meeting that need. This is what Paul challenges the church to do. This is also why James mentioned in his book in James 1.27. He says that religion that is pure, religion that is undefiled before God is this. It visits the orphans, 
It visits the widows in their affliction, and it keeps itself unstained from the world. James says that a faith that is pure and undefiled before God visits and cares for the weaker members of the body of Christ. They joyfully, that's a key word, they joyfully bear the burdens of those believers and they even fill in the gaps between them and the rest of the world. Jesus goes even further. He says that when you visit the sick, when you feed the hungry, when you care for the marginalized in society who are members of the church, you are not just doing it to them, but you are doing it to him. That's the key. And it breaks my heart that so many members of the body of Christ, the global body of Christ, are placed in disadvantaged positions relying on the government, having to make decisions about not making too much money so that they can get the government aid that they need. And there are people in the church who could meet that need so that the people in the church who have the need don't have to be a slave to the government. That's the call of Christianity, right? It's to fill in those gaps that we come around, that we realize and know that we have a duty as believers to bear the burdens of the other members of the faith. But this is key. I said we should joyfully bear those burdens, which means I have an obligation not only to bear the burden of my brother and my sister, but to not make them feel like it's a burden for me to bear. There is nothing worse then when you're being helped by someone and they feel like it is exhausting them to help you. And to this he says, let us not seek to please ourselves. What do you think he means by this? Well, I think it's simple. He's saying that as Christians, our first mind should not be what makes me most comfortable. It shouldn't be. It should not be, what do I get out of this? It should rather be, how can I serve my brother or my sister? That's it. There's no qualification needed. It's just, how can I help? Even if it is inconvenient for me, how can my inconvenience be their convenience? He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Y'all, this is further proof that scripture is actually other cultural. It goes against the normal culture of the world. The world teaches us that people should protect their peace and focus on themselves and get their happiness first and build themselves up. But it's actually quite different with Christianity. The Bible actually says, contrary to what the world says, that we actually do concern ourselves with the lives and the needs of other people. There's a Chinese proverb that says this, if you want happiness for an hour, you take a nap. If you want it for a day, you go fishing. If you want happiness for a year, you inherit a fortune. But if you want it for a lifetime, then you need to help somebody else. Y'all, 
Believe it or not, we are actually hardwired to be more fulfilled when we live our lives for Christ and for the benefit of others. God has actually designed us that way. Not only does he say that it is not good for us to be alone, but he also shares that Adam and Eve are created to mutually serve one another. They're the first two humans. And they are created for one another. In the same way, yes, we've been created because of God's capacity to love and we glorify him, but we also most glorify him when we are woven together in this picture of faith that is us holding each other up on our shoulders as we stand on the shoulders of somebody else being held up on the shoulders of somebody else. That's what the faith actually should look like. And we are more like Christ when we live like this. He says, for Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The Christian who cannot bear the burdens of others fails to understand that Christ, more than just bearing our burdens, bore our weaknesses. He bore our sins. The very things that were driving a wedge between us and God, Jesus took those on and he placed them on his back. But not only that, as we have remained weakened and dependent on him, he has been our strength. He has gone before us and he has mediated on our behalf. No, he didn't just save us and leave us to ourselves, but now we are eternally attached to him and by his grace, the other members of the body. In that same way, we are entering this body of Christ tethered to one another having this commitment to hold each other up. And yes, that even means if your brother or your sister falls into sin. That is included. Last week, we talked a lot about church hurt and the culture that came with it. But I also know that much of that came due to the sins that church people poorly responded to. I remember a story of someone I heard about. It was of a particular young lady in the church who had become pregnant and unmarried. And she had participated in different things at this church and was not only excommunicated within the walls of the church, but she was forced to admit and confess her sin before the church and ask for their forgiveness Meanwhile, the deacon who got her pregnant joined in the ridicule. Now, let me be honest. I wish I could say that that's just one story. That's one story of thousands. Where we took people and in our attempt to address their sin, to hold them up, we tore them down. We broke them. And then we sneered at them for not coming back to the church. 
Unfortunately, the church, in a lot of ways, has majored in the obvious sins. And I think y'all know what I mean by that. It's those sins that are most clearly seen. The ones you can't hide as well. The ones that give themselves off. And even then, there were plenty of times when people were struggling in sin who thought that the last place that they would ever go was to their church. Now, that is a shame. That we would condition people. That is literally like if I say I'm a doctor, but I'm going to beat you up so bad verbally that when you try to come to me, in order to get your healing, you got to be beat up first. It's abuse. It's sick. Regardless of the sin or the person, if we have not cultivated an atmosphere in church that says we are there for you struggling Christian, a saving grace and a safety net, then we have failed to be who God has called us to be. Because I can think of a lot of times that we saw Christians falling, struggling, and instead of being a safety net, we just let them hit the ground. And we returned and harshly judged them for hitting the ground so hard. There is an episode of Seinfeld, as you know, I tell you everything to Seinfeld. There's an episode of Seinfeld that has this mechanic. And this mechanic is overly critical and judgmental whenever people bring their cars to him. Now, he's actually a really great mechanic. It's Brad Garrett. He's a really great mechanic. But every time people come to him to get their car taken care of, he basically verbally assaults them for not letting, for not, for allowing the car to get in such bad shape to the point that nobody wants to come back to him anymore. Even though they know he can fix the car, they know they have to take the abuse in order to get the car fixed. And they would rather just walk around with a car that doesn't work. I wonder how many people right now feel or have felt that about Christians. That we were struggling and really needed help, but we made ourselves unapproachable or even that we set unrealistic expectations about how people should be living. So how should we respond? Paul answers this as well, but he answers this in Galatians 6. One, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It's two, two things there. We're going to get to it. And then he says this, but also keep watching yourself. Lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Look at how plain this is. If anyone is a believer and is caught in a transgression, an offense, a wrongdoing, a sin, then those of us who are and what we say that we are should restore them 
but also restore them in a spirit of gentleness. That's two different things right there. There's the restoration part. There's in the spirit of gentleness part. The Greek word used here for restore is only used in the Bible once and is right here. Now, the root of this word, if we see it in this in a Greco-Roman context, it was most often used by doctors who would restore or mend a bone. But not just any kind of bone is mending a bone by resetting it. So that's almost like a compound fracture. You have to reset it in order for it to heal correctly. So why is Paul emphasizing that? we should be restoring people in the spirit of gentleness. Why do we need to do it gently? Well, you may think that naturally restoration would be a gentle process, but it will only be gentle if you make it gentle. Last Sunday, I'm not going to look up, y'all sweet Christy swore that she broke her toe. And so her sweet husband, as my mother-in-love says, her sweet husband said that he was going to wrap it up, that he was going to mend the, what I didn't think was a broken, tooth, broken toe. And so the whole time I'm wrapping it, she's like, be careful. Don't touch it. But I got to wrap it. So I'm going to have to come in contact with it. Now, my intentions were to help her injury mend. That was my intention. Now, I could do so in no regard for her, and in my attempt to mend her injury, well, what could I do? I could cause her even more injury because I'm not being gentle. I think a lot of times that is what happens. In our attempt to mend and restore other believers, instead of doing so gently, we do so harshly. Now, why Christian was sea walking the next day is neither here nor there. But the point is, is as we restore people, we need to be gentle enough not to cause more hurt. We have to. And Paul says that we do that by not thinking that we're so far removed and unable to be given into that same temptation. Therefore, you keep watch on yourself or you might be tempted too. A Christian in the church struggling emotionally, we're here with you. We are here with you. A Christian struggling to meet ends meet, we're there for you. And a Christian who may even be struggling in sin, we are there beside you to hold you up, to bear your burden so that you don't have to do it alone. Y'all, the church, the global church, should be a refuge and a sanctuary to people who feel that their burdens are impossible to bear. And no, contrary to popular belief, God actually does put more on you than you can bear because you were never intended to bear it alone. 
Look at what Paul goes on to say in verses 3 through 5 in Galatians. He says, if anyone thinks that he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will not be in God, it will be in himself. And it will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And for these type of people, Paul says, they will have to bear their own load. Y'all, that is not something that any of us should want to do. Those who will not come to bear the load of their brother or sister will be relegated to also bear their own load. But when we come together and seek the welfare of others around us, do you know what we become as a church? We become, as a people, a force that even hell itself cannot reckon with. An unbreakable bond, a band of brothers and sisters who are there for each other, who are there with each other, who are holding each other up, who are going out, making disciples of the people who don't know Christ, and increasing the brotherhood. That's what we become as a church. That is what it means to be Christ-like Christians. It's a challenge for us. I mentioned last week, all of us have probably been on both sides of that church hurt thing, but we have a duty here as a people to not establish something new, but to reestablish what the Bible says Christians should always have been. People who love you enough to not just tell you the truth, but who love you enough that when that truth is hard, can give it to you in a way that you can receive it. And even if you are struggling emotionally, physically, financially, or even in sin, that we are there to hold you up, to restore you, and do so in a spirit of meekness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, for the word today. God, we thank you in the ways that this word is a challenge to us. God, it is quite easy for us to just kind of nestle down in the things that everybody else does, God, to settle down in the way that the world may even think about life. Well, I'm, I'm not here for anybody else. I'm just here for me. I just, I just got to get mine and go. That's not how we've been called to live as Christians. God, you have called us to see and, and not just see all of our brothers and sisters the same, but to look at them individually and know that we're all going to have struggles and ebbs and flows in our relationship. But you've placed us in this body, this specific body, so that we don't have to go it alone. God, if we're single, if we're married, if we're young, if we're old, if we're at the end of our kids living with us or just at the beginning, God, wherever stage we might be in life, there are other members of the body who are there to help us so that it is not just all on us. And so, God, we know that this is a challenge, but we've got to be the church that you've called us to be. God, and that is my prayer that you will allow us to be those Christians that don't seek to please themselves, God, 
to have that kind of love that we talked about on Wednesday that doesn't insist in its own way, that is not prideful, that doesn't boast, but that is patient, that is kind, that is loving, that is empathetic for those around us. God, I know that there are probably people in this room, there are probably even people who are watching who, who don't understand what the church should be or maybe they've seen a version of the church and don't think they want to be a part of that, God, but my prayer is that if anybody in this room or watching has seen a false version of the church, God, let us, let these individual and collective believers be the best example of what you have called us to be. God, we know that this comes with a lot of um, toil and, and it's not necessarily easy, but God, we do trust and believe that you are making us into the body that you have called us to be, God. And so as we think about the things that we've heard, we just ask that you would just be with us, give us the strength to bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray.